Shalom, shalom, lovely friends. It is wonderful to be in the week of Hanukkah with you. Great to be with you in conversation and in learning together, as always, uh, much more interesting than uh, the presentation that I've prepared is the remarks that you have and your reactions and your build-offs and disagreements. So I'm excited to race to get to that point. Uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein. Wow. Um, I would put him on on the list of those um, I don't really understand. <laughs> You know, I mean, I don't understand any of these guys, really, or and the men and the women. Um, but some of them I've tried really hard to stand, understand, and some I've tried less hard to understand. And um, Wittgenstein is someone that I feel I, I can't do justice to whatever he really meant, because in some cases I've read most of what thinkers have said, or, or, or just a lot. And in some cases I've read, okay, I read a book, and then I wrote three, read three books of what people thought he said, right? Right. So, but um, that's very different than like diving for years into somebody's content. So, in any case, um, let's start with a little poll question before we dive into Wittgenstein, which is always uh, a fun exercise in bending our minds around a little bit. Oh, I can't see. Oh, I got to make it bigger. If you also can't read it all, make it bigger. How accurate can words be? Option one words are a very poor tool to get or give access to full truth. Option two, words can be deeply meaningful, but often so inadequate. Option three, words contain deep truth and are our best vehicle to deliver and receive truth. How accurate can words be? Option one, words are a very poor tool to get or give access to the full truth. Option two, words can be deeply meaningful, but often so inadequate. Option three, Words contain deep truth and are our best vehicles to deliver and receive truth. One out of six of y'all um, say that words are a very poor tool to get or give access to our to the full truth. Five out of six of y'all say words can be deeply meaningful, but often so inadequate. And nobody here is voting today, but words contain deep truth and are best vehicles to deliver and receive truth. Okay. The meaning of language, the efficacy of language, is going to be one of our many topics today with Ludwig Wittgenstein from the late 19th century, really early 20th century. Are we able to say what we truly mean? Do we, do even well-intentioned words have the power to lead us astray? How can we understand one another better? Born in Austria towards the end of the 19th century, Ludwig Wittgenstein had three Jewish grandparents, though his family had largely assimilated into the Christian culture and religion. It's unclear how engaged in Judaism he actually was, and his works contain an ambivalent attitude towards his Jewish roots. In fact, he does something I'm not such a fan of, although I get why people of earlier generations did it, most certainly, which is when he refers to his Judaism publicly, 
uh, his Jewish ethnicity or ancestry, he does it in a self-deprecating way. Um, he, he, uh, can, you know, which is very different than being a self -de self-deprecating humor, which can be a sign of humility. But uh, sometimes, um, you know, um, I don't, let's not go there. But <laughs> but um, to refer to Jewish ethnicity in self-deprecating terms is kind of a different thing. And his, we know that his sister is trying to work it out so that he's not, she's not on the Nazis list, that she's un-Jewish enough that somehow she can wiggle her way off being on the list, um, which is complicated, but a whole nother uh, conversation we're not gonna have today, or maybe we will. Wittgenstein's major philosophical contributions had to do with language and language games, language games. Wittgenstein's most famous work and his only one published within his lifetime was his Tractus Logico-Philosophicus, Logico or his Logical-Philosophical Treatise. For Wittgenstein, philosophical problems are primarily problems of language. We propose ideas and raise questions, but much of what we think to be perplexing about life is a result from failing to use language clearly and precisely. Only through a careful examination of our words and the ideas we think they communicate can we come to a greater understanding about ourselves and the world. Here he found fierce disagreement from his peer, Karl Popper, who, who believed that philosophical problems were real problems to solve, right? Wittgenstein thinks they're language games. Popper thinks we need to work through logic to solve philosophical problems. Big disagreement, a very interesting one, right? Or just think about theodicy for a moment. Oh, we'll get there right now. He, we can begin to understand how significant this disagreement can be when we consider theodicy the question of why bad things happen to good people. Is the problem our perceived lack of divine justice to be resolved through language or to be solved through logic, right? So that, that's a really interesting tension. And it's worth thinking about that in our own lives when we are trying to solve a problem of how we're thinking about things. Do we need to shift the language we're using for how we're thinking about a predicament in our lives? Or do we need to think about the argumentation or the logic we're using. Is it a cognitive error or a language error? Sometimes those things are very inextricably linked, but sometimes they can be quite distinct. Think about a conflict in your family or in a relationship. Is it a conflict about how we understand the language we're using? Or is it a conflict that has a deeper substance beyond, beyond just language choices? According to Wittgenstein, even once we fully clarify language, such that many of the philosophical problems we struggle with go away, we will always be stuck on and bewildered by the fact that there is existence itself. He wrote, not how the world is the mystical, but that, not how the world is the mystical, but that it is. We feel that even if all possible scientific questions be answered, the problems of life have still not been touched at all. Of course, there is then no question left, and just this is the answer. The solution of the problem of life is seen in the vanishing of the problem. So even if we had all the answers of science, all the answers of human history, you know, we worked everything out that things are relatively clear um, from, um, from those vantage points, nonetheless, we will have done nothing to understand the meaning of life. We'll have done nothing to understand why we exist and for what purpose. And so he even does think that even if we did somehow magically get clarity on all language, 
we understood each other, we understood ourselves in our language choices, we still would have this problem. For Wittgenstein, language rarely reveals our intentions clearly, right? For many, language, you should listen to my words. My words are clear, right? But but Wittgenstein thinks language actually fails to, to actually properly show you my intention, even though I'm making my best language choice. Just as clothes conceal the true body. In fact, ma- I mean, many people make choi- uh, clothes choices that reveal the body. You want to kind of highlight parts of your body through clothes choices. But other people make clothes choices that conceal body, right? It's worth thinking about when you buy clothes, what you're trying to highlight or what you're trying to conceal, how you choose what to wear. Um, And in any case, just like clothes oftentimes conceal the true body or intended to do that to some degree, language has a tendency to conceal the true reality of thought right? In fact, one might even say it's deceptive. We're using language to try to indicate that we actually are conveying the real thought that's happening. And yet how much of the language is actually a power play? Okay, we'll get to Foucault later. Um, But how much of that is actually a power play um, in terms of language choices rather than a pure vehicle of truth? Um, That doesn't mean that humans are fundamentally deceptive. It just means language is incredibly complicated. Think back to the time of COVID-19 emergency. When, when we're all wearing masks. Were those masks forms of protection or actually disguises? Likely we use them as both. But either way, thinking about the relationship between masks and language brings us to a fascinating debate about the adequacy of language to portray our true thoughts, our true reality. In modernity, we stake a lot in language. Consider Freud's notion of talk therapy to reveal the hidden truths from childhood, which depended upon speaking to the psychoanalyst. Yet in post-modernity, from the influence of Wittgenstein most certainly, the idea has emerged that language can offer an utterly inadequate symbolism of truths understood much deeper that cannot be conveyed in language. Perhaps said more simply, Wittgenstein's point is that we don't really understand how language works i.e. how it conveys meaning, in part because we use it without thinking. We just use the language based on the social conventions we exist in. He is just noting that language is rarely as transparent as we want it to be. According to Wittgenstein's understanding of language, people often miscommunicate despite their best intentions to speak clearly. Right? We always think the problem is the listener. I spoke clearly. Why didn't you hear me? Why didn't you understand me? You say to your child, you say to your spouse, you say to somebody at work, didn't you hear what I said? Right? Right? The problem is the listener. Right? But Wittgenstein's saying that people miscommunicate despite our intentions to be clear. We just don't really know how to be clear. Language is meant to be referential. The words we speak refer to specific ideas and things. However, it almost, it's almost never the case that our words convey meaning as precisely as images, which we understand as referring to something concrete. Unlike pictures, here's what he writes, language disguises the thought so that from the external form of the clothes, one cannot infer the form of the thought they clothe because the external form of the clothes is constructed 
with quite another object than to let the form of the body be recognized. Part of what people talk about with the bias of media is not just the, what's written in the media, whether you're talking about Fox News or CNN. It's not just what they write. It's the images they choose to show. And it's worth thinking whenever we're, you know, we're not just digesting news as if it's just truth entering our mind, right? But ask ourselves, like, why are they, why is that person speaking about the story and not this person? Why are they showing that image as opposed to a different image, right? Those image choices are always very significant in terms of bias. Um, why is the person crying in the image? Why is, um, why is it, you know, this person representing that group rather than that person? For this reason, Wittgenstein believed we must be exceptionally careful with our words, how we use them and when we speak them. In general, human beings tend to take language for granted. However, Wittgenstein makes clear just how central it is to human existence. Language is not only the way we communicate with others, but functions to structure the very contours of our existence. As he famously writes, the limits of my language mean the limits of my world. In a set, now, now, everybody talks about an early Wittgenstein and a late Wittgenstein, he, where he has a massive shift in his, in his thinking about language. So uh, maybe we'll get there. In a sense, Wittgenstein felt it was better to err on the side of silence rather than use words in a confusing manner. He concludes the Tractatus with a statement that Maimonides himself would have agreed with. What we cannot speak about, we must pass over in silence. Wow, that, would that be a good principle today? Um, how many of us, when something emerges in the news, all of a sudden become PhDs in foreign policy? How many of us, when people disagree about medicine, all of a sudden have doctorates, right? How many of us, um, well, I mean, you know, everybody's a rabbi, you know, because <laughs> uh, we're, we're Jews and Jews learn and Jews have the right to represent Judaism on their own. We don't, you know, but but it, it's very easy for us to, um, you know, quickly become experts. And when everyone has a blog and everyone has a social media account and everyone wants to comment on things, um, so, but it is it is a profound question to ask ourselves. Where do I feel morally charged to speak up? Where do I feel morally charged to be silent? Because silence gets a bad rap in um, in the discourse of, you know, being moral agents, because we often think you don't be a bystander, don't be silent. Silence is acquiescence, right? And there's a point to make there, right? But um, there's also the crime of of over speaking, um, you know, and um, adding a lot of confusion when we don't really understand what we're talking about, and that that causing you know you know contributing to ignorance. And I would I would propose we all do that. Um, to you know you know I was even thinking yesterday. I went to a dermatologist, and I wanted to use a word for what the thing was I thought I had on my skin, and I said, "Huh." Do I confuse the dermatologist by labeling what I think this is, having no clue what it is? And then they're going to be like, oh, they're going to be misled. I mean, I'm sure they're more equipped, more equipped than that. <laughs> right. But should I just say, here's a thing. Look at the thing and tell me about it. Or should I say, I got this thing. Right. And uh, what can you do about it? So. Um, so, too, like we, we enter diagnosing things, um, you know, without knowing what they are and framing and essentially framing a conversation um, before someone else has had the chance to frame it. 
Judaism, of course, has a long history of understanding the power of speech to do good and bad. The Torah makes clear that God uses language to create the world. Right? God created the world. The rabbis teach through words. The world was created through words. Very interesting. It doesn't say, oh, God used a hammer. I mean, that would make no sense. Right? God used action. What do you mean action? Like, what does it even look like? Right? Doesn't it doesn't even say something interesting like God blew breath? I mean, that's how humans got created through breath, right? But the world was created through language. Ah. God said, let there be light, and there was light. And this idea becomes particularly important to Kabbalah and Hasidut. According to the mystical tradition, it is God's words that serve as the building blocks of all creation. However, language can be used not only to create, but also to destroy, of course. We learn from the Talmud, very important quote in Bava Matsya, anyone who humiliates another in public, it is as though they have spilled blood, i.e. humiliating someone in public is akin to murder. Wow. If, Ed, if our Musar practice was only on that, how do we, as a Musar practice, make sure we never humiliate somebody? Imagine if that was all we had to do each day, that we never shame someone. My gosh, I can't imagine how many, how much we we shame people unintentionally in ways we don't even imagine, sometimes even non-verbally, just how we look at someone. Think about even the, 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 the sexual gaze, someone who doesn't even know, but they kind of looked up and down somebody in a way that maybe wasn't even intended to be sexual. Maybe it was, but that person feels kind of viewed, you know, I mean, preyed upon might feel strong, but, but um, an act of voyeurism. Think about someone who, says something when they walk into an office to the front receptionist, just the way that they speak in a way that may in some way humiliate, not to even mention the intentional things we say, right. That, um, that, 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 that shame people. Um, and this is akin to spilling blood. Now let me pause for a moment. Um, what do y'all think that means? I mean, one read of that is just, Oh, it's not at all literal, right? Like, that's the rabbis just saying, hey, it's really, really important. Like murder is really bad. So let's just say humiliating people is really bad. It's like murder. It's not literal. But if they mean it more literally, right, that there's something called spilling blood, there's something called uh, killing someone, and humiliation is in some ways like that. What do you think they mean by that? If that person finds out that you said this about them or that you humiliated them in that way or whatever, though, then they're probably going to be pretty hurt inside, you know, a lot of the time. So Right. Great. Great. So great. So hurt. Um, you know, blood is something we can see when you spill blood. One of the reasons my kids are so scared of blood is because hurt is so objective. I mean, I, I mean, I can't actually enter their minds anymore around this, but I think it's not that they think they're going to die because they see blood. There's something about um, pain being so concrete. When you feel sad, you can't touch that sadness, really. But the blood, you're like, whoa, that's real. I can see that hurt in a way, right? Well, you get a black and blue, it takes a while to get it for it to show up, right? But the blood, it's like, whoa, something's going on, right? Okay, good. Yes, uh, Sarah. Uh, on the other hand, humiliates is an interesting action verb. And how it's defined by another. I mean, generally, if you have said or done something and I feel humiliated, 
I'm the one in control of my feelings. The person saying or doing something can't control how I react or respond to those words. Mm -hmm. So for me, humiliating is, it's like humus. It's something to really dig your, your roots into and deal with and, um, and taking actions against another human being is one thing and deliberately working to harm another mm -hmm. I get but humiliates mm -hmm. I'm having difficulty with okay maybe it's that well, language thing yes. again yes <laughs> no no and this is one of the reasons why Jewish learning needs to be in Hebrew um because um I I, I believe I have to look back at the passage but I'm pretty sure the passage um uh is actually um uses the language punim face uh, it might even be bullshit punning, but it, it might or the whitening of the face. Essentially, it's not there is it's not the language of humiliation. It's more like um, you, you've seen somebody whitened in a sense. You've seen their you something that has changed in their face that indicates their um, their shame. But again, shame is a very different word than 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 um, humiliation. So, anyways, and thank you. Yeah, thank you. That, for that again, you know, says that I can control somebody's reaction. Right. 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 Great. Great. Um, Aglaya, interesting on character assassination. Yes. Very big. And then Lauren, thank you for writing that. In Judaism, bl blood is life. Humiliating someone is diminishing their life. Right. So that's very interesting also. Um, yeah. In terms of uh, what, yeah, what blood represents. And then I would also say two other things. On a spiritual level, <laughs> you might say, well, life is not just being alive. Chayim is something deeper than being alive. Being a part of Chayim, being a part of being high, is participating in an elevated existence in a sense, right? And when your elevated existence is lowered, you're less alive. You're alive when you're joyful, you're connected, you're animated. And when you are torn, torn down a little bit, you're less alive. But the other one I would say is around suicide, right? That one of the reasons one might commit suicide or be at more at risk is based around a sense of shame. Um, and of course, that's different around different cultures in the world. But think about, um, uh, shame, uh, you know, uh, certain shame cultures and honor cultures and 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 uh, suicides that come out of around a lack of honor. So in any case, it might actually be that by by shaming someone, you have put them at higher risk, like in mental health, su you know, suicidal and the like. Um, Yes, and yes, thank you, sir. An invitation to act towards others with chesed. So anyway, sorry for that little break in our in our uh, presentation here, but I felt like it was an important uh, text to jump into. So in any case, we talked about God's capacity for language to create and build, as we do as well, but also the power to destroy through language, and that's one of the rabbi's uh, teachings around there. From here, we come to understand the severity of speaking negatively about others. In the Jewish tradition, one can perhaps find echoes of Wittgenstein's caution about using words inappropriately in the following teaching of Pirkei Avot. Shammai, we don't quote Shammai so much, at least as the authority, but he's over here in Pirkei Avot, even though he loses the Hillel, but I love that we keep the voice of the dissent alive. Shammai used to say, speak little, but do much. 
and receive all people with a pleasant countenance. Um, on a personal note, my mother had many virtues who passed away four months ago. But I think one of her one of her many top virtues was that last bit there. But besaver panim yafot, to greet people warmly. Everywhere she went, she approached people with a smile and said kind things to them, even uh, even at her very end of life. Um, when I would wake her up in the middle of the night, immediately she would do that. And um, and what an impact it had on me. Uh, and um, and that's not for everyone, of course. But um, but anyways, Shammai teaches here. We should try to greet people with a warm feeling, um, because that first interaction will will likely dictate the rest of the interaction. Um, the feeling we get about someone and what they're and what they what they are being with us can be conveyed very very quickly. And so, but it's not just a strategic point; it's a moral point. In any case, speak little but do much. I think that is such a beautiful rabbinic teaching that we should put on our wall. Um, or at least if we speak a lot, then do a whole lot, right? Because it's so easy to uh, um, have our, our speech outrun our our, 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 our actions. Um, okay. With his second major work, Philosophical Investigations, published after his death, Wittgenstein posited that language is about more than just pictures, but rather games. What exactly did he mean by this? It was not to claim, as did Humpty Dumpty in Alice in Wonderland, oh, you didn't think I was going there, huh? That when I use a word, means just what I choose it to mean, neither more nor less, <laughs> um, is what is said over there. Rather, by calling language a game, Wittgenstein meant the language functions by its own set of rules that are independent from any objective reality. Games have rules, just like um, the rules of language functions that we use and participate in, rather than thinking language has conveys objective truth. Different contexts require us to say and act in certain ways if we want to accomplish our goals. In this approach, language is not merely a method of relaying information, Rather, it is a tool that we use to achieve certain outcomes depending on the situation. Miscommunication happens when people misunderstand the language game being played. So at every moment, there's a game being played, and we use language to play the game. For example, when one runs into an acquaintance at the supermarket, our language games dictate one should greet them with the phrase, How are you? However, it's rarely the case that we expect an answer of more than a few words. If in that moment they were to launch into a speech about their life story, we would think to ourselves they, must, they misunderstood the language game that was being played. I'm here to buy cucumbers, not to hear about your life story. I was asking, how are you, for you to say pretty good today, right? Naturally, as Jews, we love language and language games. For many of us, our week centers around the reading of Torah, but that's not enough. The rabbis must explain it to us in a sermon against the wishes of all the congregants. <laughs> also, the Torah often lacks clarity and specificity. So we have the Mishnah, which began as an oral tradition set up to easily be memorized. But how do we know what we're supposed to take away from the Mishnah? From here, we get the Gemara. The Gemara is going to interpret the Mishnah, which interpreted the Tanakh. 
with all the debates and the legends from the rabbis who painstakingly sought to wring more and more meaning out of the existing tradition. However, the Jewish obsession with trying to understand the text of our tradition, of course, does not end here. The Jewish canon is full of commentators who were often grammarians who still believed that we had not been able to get the full meaning out of the existing words. There's new insights into the grammar we need to pull out. So they added more words to the mix, more commentaries. They asked more questions and proposed even more answers and, and raised new kushiot, new, new challenges to the text. While for Wittgenstein, language can be understood either through precise analysis or by determining what language game is being played, in the Jewish tradition, we seek to resolve the problem of unclear language by adding layers and layers of more language. <laughs> by the time we get to the Hasidic tradition, around the end of the 18th century, wordplay itself becomes the way of adding entirely new, simultaneous meanings to the existing meanings of the text. One young neo-Hasidic rabbi, contemporary, has expressed why he loves this method of using existing words to draw out new meanings and new Torah. Here's what he recently said on his podcast. I'm obsessed with wordplay. When I encountered Hasidut, when I encountered Hasidic texts, I found the words are substance. The way that Hasidic approaches the text manifest is that each word, each letter, each phrase is itself substance. It has character. The letter has character to it. And so if there's an Aleph showing up here, Aleph being the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, then you have in play all the meanings of Aleph. And then next, next level up, you get certain words that every time those words come up, you can tie them to every other instance that word came up in other texts. You start to be in this mind frame and this heart frame of basically punning. I know it sounds trivializing, but it unlocked a lot for me, right? So those who are engaged in that type of commentary, every letter has, has meaning to unravel every, every word. For all of us immersed in Torah learning, we can unlock the mysteries behind the surface of the words and letters. What the letters and words literally mean to us is only a tiny fraction of what the words can fully convey to us, right? Think back to Pardes, Pshat, Remez, Drash, and Sod. You only one level of interpreting a text is literal. Then there's the the hidden level, the mis the, the mysterious levels, the um, the allegorical levels. So too, if we listen to somebody speaking to us and only interpreted their words on a literal level, we would miss so much of language. We have to we have to interpret the language that people use with us on multiple levels of understanding of what is being conveyed in any moment. <clears throat> For Wittgenstein, we get meaning from clarifying the meaning of language and by understanding the different language games we play. In the Jewish system, we have an ever-evolving process, a process of exploring the meaning of language through the process of Midrash. In the Talmud, we find the famous story that even Moshe, the receiver of the Torah, who passed it on to us, wasn't able to understand all the depths of the text. We read in Tractate Menachot. This is pretty radical because many traditions say their greatest prophet understood everything, right? But Moshe, who is the closest to God in the Jewish tradition, um, 
has a great limitation, as we're about to see here. It says in the Talmud, Rav Yehuda says that Rav says, when Moses ascended on high, he found the Holy One, be blessed, sitting and tying crowns on the letters of the Torah. Moses said before God, Master of the universe, who is preventing you from giving the Torah without these additions? God said to him, there is a man who is destined to be born after several generations. And Akiva, that's Rabbi Akiva, is his name. He is destined to derive from each and every thorn of these crowns, mounds upon mounds of halachot, of, of new laws. It is for his sake that the crowns must be added to the letters of the Torah. Now, what, what, I, what I didn't share here, because it's a whole passage, which is amazing, is that, let me paint the picture, because it's just an awesome story. Mo Moses goes on, remember Doc in Back to the Future? Moses goes on Doc's time travel machine instead of Marty and Einstein. And uh, what a great movie. Oh, it's, just, it's so fun. <laughs> um, Moses goes on Doc's time travel machine from roughly 3300, right? Uh, you know, 1300 BCE. And he goes 1300 years forward, um, roughly, uh, let's say 1500 years, to Rabbi Akiva's classroom. And in this Midrash, in the Talmud, Moses is sitting in the back row of Rabbi Akiva's class. And Rabbi Akiva is teaching these new ideas. And Moses is freaking out. Moses is like, what in the world is this? This is not what God told us at Sinai. This guy is the teacher of Torah. And then, um, and then Rabbi Akiva says, and this too was given to Moses at Sinai. And Moses is like, what? I didn't get that, right? And God basically is like, it was there. You didn't get it, right? Which is to say, there's ongoing continuous revelation. That the revelation that started, it continues to be revealed in different eras, in different ways. It's understood, right? You know, there's a tension in the Catholic Church right now. The Pope recently expelled uh, a bishop. Um, who is on the conservative end of the church and expelled is too strong of a word, but basically kicked out of the Vatican, um, but like out of the church. And, and um, you know, part of the traditionalist and Catholicism think the Pope is distorting, right? You can't make Jesus say whatever you want, right? Jesus said some things and didn't say some things. And um, so more liberal people will sometimes take more liberty to kind of inject contemporary meaning and values into ancient texts, whereas more conservative-leaning people will do more acrobatics to get it to say what they want instead of less acrobatics. Uh, anyways, lots to say about that. But um, uh, but in any case, um, Rabbi Kiva is doing some of the acrobatics, and God is affirming it. And then Moses is relieved to learn, ah, it's okay. He thinks he's teaching the Torah of Moses given at Sinai. And that's apparently the language gate. That's apparently the process that is a part of what it means to be an interpreter of Torah. That you need to use the language that the tradition uses for reinterpretation. You can't, well, here, here's, what, here's what a bad language game would look like if you want to be a part of traditional Judaism. You'd say, ah, what they thought was immoral. Let's now say it the moral way. Right? No, 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 no. Nobody does that traditionally. You don't be like, Oh, the view 100 years ago is immoral. Now we're going to say it moral. What you say is, ah, what they really meant was this. 
For if they were in our era, they also would say it like this. It's called Ukimta. It says, ah, they only said it that way because they were in their era. But if they were in our era, they'd say it like this, right? Which is something you could say around something like gay sex. Be like, ah, they said gay sex is prohibited because in that era, it was understood like this. But now we know this and they in this era would also agree that everybody needs intimacy and everybody needs love and partnership, right? And so, um, okay, anyways, um, lots, <laughs> lots to unpack there. So to move to a conclusion, um, whoa, we're way past time, sorry. Where, whereas Wittgenstein was focused on the way language was used, the Talmud points to an additional dimension of language, the shape of the very letters themselves. The crowns placed on them by God are understood as conveying a meaning of their own over and above what one might discern in the word alone, right? How, how interesting. The crowns on letters are like extra letters, extra meaning that are put onto these letters that are, that are in the Sefer Torah. It's not kosher if you don't have the right crowns on them. You need these crowns in there. It's not just that the letters are spelled correctly. Language we learn, we learn from the work of Wittgenstein is an imperfect tool. However, it is the primary tool we have as human beings, the one we've relied on for millennia and will continue to re rely on for the foreseeable future, despite our current image-saturated culture. Yeah, I mean, think about Instagram. I mean, I was terrified when Instagram first came out. I was like, what? Instead of people writing words, they're just going to post images? Instead of the, the words being primary, the image is going to be primary now? Um, people are now just going to be influenced by images and not words. However, by cultivating a moral consciousness that shows us that words are imperfect in our hands and are potentially dangerous, we can learn to be more cautious, more empathetic, and more equipped to find new meaning in ancient wisdom. Okay, dear friends. That was a little long-winded, but I would love to hear from you. Lauren, is that a new hand up or an old hand up? I'm sorry. If it's still relevant, you're up first. It's a new It's a new hand. Oh, great. Hi, Lauren. Hi. Same cat, new hand. Um, thanks for mentioning the cat last week. My real buddy. Um, interesting with communication, because I think communication involves not only speech, but your inflection of speech your body language and your facial expression. And um, without all of that, you can't get it. Like speaking to someone on the phone isn't exactly like face to face. And so if someone's intention is to deceive, to deceive and they're doing it all completely in a deceptive way, they have communicated what they wanted to, whether it's a lie or not. The other thing I wanted to say is language. Hebrew is direct as direct can be. I think it's very hard to not say what you mean in Hebrew. It's also really hard to be polite. I mean, I, I would try so hard to go, like, excuse me, sir, may I please have your seat? Like, it would be like, the fuck I should not let me let and get nowhere. And you got Israelis, one of those hands in the face. One of those hands in the face, right? <laughs> right, right. And Israelis would just go, Zeus. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's also in the language as well as the body language. Awesome. Great. Right. And so many things, things that we think someone has done or said that is rude, that they can't even imagine as rude. Rude? What do you mean? I'm just... And, and then once you add on the new zeitgeist of, like, be authentic, be your real self, like, I'm just being me, you know? And so, but if we want to be... Um, morally responsible, 
we care not only about conveying what we want to convey, but making sure it's received in the way we want it to be received. Yes, we think we're just speaking truth, but we really hurt someone in thinking that we've just spoken truth. And as, as Lauren, you said so well, there's so many different cultures. And one of the things that, boy, do we not only have to teach our children, but ourselves, is what communication channels to choose based on what we're trying to convey. To have the emotional intelligence to know the communication. When do I text somebody? When do I use a voice memo? When do I call them? When do I need a FaceTime or a Zoom? When do I need to meet them in person, right? Some types of, if you're dating someone, some types of breakups, it might work by text. You only saw each other twice. But if you're in a two-year relationship with someone and you break up by text, right? Oh, really? It's a conversation. Okay. Now, so these are complicated issues, but um, it's worth thinking about how, what channels of communication we use to convey what we want to convey. Exactly what you're saying, Lauren, based upon how many aspects of 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 of, of ourselves are involved in, in communicating. So, yeah, awesome. Okay, Aglaia, hi. Okay, so pretty much after I tell you this story, um, everyone in here is going to be convinced that I'm the biggest Machiavellian on the planet. But you know what? Whatever. It's lang- It's just language anyway, though. And Machiavellianism is just word. So, um, well, I'll just I'll treat you to something that I've done to my students many times. Okay. So part of the problem with being a historian is the fact that, well, in my primary sources, what were people allowed to communicate? If you actually said what you meant about the king, you were going to get killed, definitely. Or if you said what you meant about anything. So I'm actually spending all day long reading sources. My job revolves around people who are lying to me all of the time. So this is actually, you know, bled into my life, you know, like your career starts to take over your life. So then I just look at the students, I say, do you know how many people I've caught lying to me over the years? And then they start saying, "Uh uh-oh. And I said, yeah, because one word can get you completely busted. And I have busted people using one word before just because, well, historian skills, you start to wonder. So why exactly did you say that? And you realize that you've seen that word before and everything. Now, that's one of the reasons why I can't stand for people to lie to me. I That is like, do not do this. Now, if I catch you lying and I call you on it though, and you admit, own up to it right there, then it's like, okay, fine, we're fine. You know, people do dumb stuff all the time. But if you lie to me again, trying to cover it up, well, then we're going to have a problem. And I might not let you know that I know that you're lying to me. And so they're all like, uh, well, then they start thinking about, uh-oh. And I said, you know, then I just say, okay, would anyone like to be a historian now and have that, you know, like little issue of like not being able to trust people for the rest of your life because people lie all of the time. And so then they get into this, uh, maybe not. Maybe, maybe not. Not that they were interested in being in historians anyway, but it actually is true, though. And unfortunately, though, it has gotten me out of um, dangerous situations before in which, you know, just a word that someone said actually triggered something. And then I started knowing, okay, this person has negative intentions. Be very, very careful here. Now, where's Toby when you need her, though? Thinking about this, you know, from a completely different perspective, though, going legal aspect, though, because that's the other half of the problem, though, if you think about this, how many cases the Supreme Court of the United States has completely screwed up because they stuck to the letter of the law on the Constitution. And then you get to a case like Brown versus Board of Education when they had to start saying, OK, wait a minute. Now we have to interpret this a little bit differently. And oops, there's another case in our history in which 
yeah, there's a legal precedent now that actually says we cannot rule according to the letter of the Constitution. And so here's the thing. That's one of the reasons why, you know, you never know. Words will communicate something. And a lot of the time that they're failing to communicate what you intended to communicate. Yeah. However, though, they still communicate a lot of things. And yeah. it may or may not be something that's working out in your favor. So, you know, I mean, so for instance, so we had a lot of people who wrote the Constitution who never intended for, you know, black kids to go to school at all, let alone with white kids, let, you know, didn't intend for girls to get an education, didn't intend for a lot of things. However, though, it did work out that way. So I don't know if we wanted to apply this to Torah, though. Well, a lot of things can happen that way, too, with Torah. So, I mean, and you know, we're sitting here in this Zoom room having this conversation. Now, here's the thing that I said, everyone's going to walk out of here thinking I'm the biggest Machiavellian on earth and everything, though, which I don't know. I don't think I'm a Machiavellian. But hey, if you think that I'm a Machiavellian, I can't have any control over that, like Sarah says. So whatever. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. So, yeah, that that sense of control is very humbling, actually. How much are we in control? of what we want the other to understand. Um, you know, it's funny what you say about the classroom. I lied so much as a kid in class. And, and my, my most common lie that I made all the time in school was, was the question that was asked dozens of times every day, do you understand? And I went like this, having no clue what was going on. Cause I was thinking about a basketball game I was thinking about a movie. I don't even know what's going on for the last half hour. Do you understand? Please don't call on me because I have no clue what's going on. Right? So, you know, I was lying all the time. I, precisely to that question, I have no clue what's going on. I mean, I don't know how I survived school, really, for those years where my mind was everywhere but in that room. So, um, but I love what you said also around trust, um, that actually a big part of our ability of who we trust. Yeah, I did do my homework. And the goal of the homework was to say what they want me to say. Um, I just want to say what I want to say. I don't, to, I don't know if I understand anything, but, um, but really it's trust. I think we, if, if, if we took five people in our lives, five people were in deep relationship with our lives, and you, were, and you did this very privately where nobody could see it, say, how much do I really trust the person? Of course, there's many levels of trust. Do they trust that they love me? Trust if they would steal from me? But, but trust that their words are what is, are, you know, are accurate. That is what they really believe, let's say. Um, I think we find something very interesting there. And even people that we love or care about or are in close relationship with, that we, that we might find that we actually don't totally trust them, precisely based on how they use language, right? I'll be back in five minutes, some people say. Drives them crazy because everyone knows it's going to be half hour, right? Or they, or they exaggerate or they're totally loose they, you know, with with um with what they're describing in a way that we we don't really trust that that's really how it went down, right? And I think if we ask ourselves about our relationships, do we really trust people? I know a bunch of people I'm in close relationship with that I I trust almost nothing they say. I, I I'm not calling them a liar. I just know that their commitment to the precision of language and to being reflective about their language choices is very low. Rather, they think of language as survival. I use language to kind of get by, to kind of get what I want, to kind of Make sure you get what, you know, it's, it's, it's a game. I mean, let's bracket the game. Uh, somebody just had a hand go up. Sarah, I think that was you. You want to jump in, Sarah? Yeah, I, I was about to put it in the chat. But isn't it 
our individual responsibility to check out what we think we've heard, what we believe we've understood. And if we don't do that, then that's on us. It's not on the other person. Great, great. Yes. Okay, that's great, Sarah. So it's an extra reminder for us to say, here's what I'm hearing, right? Um, I just want to check with you if this is right. Um, yeah, I mean, I try to do that all the time. Like, no, it's not what I meant at all. You know what I mean? Or like, or they double down. Yeah, I didn't just mean that. I even meant this. Right. Okay. Hi, Gary. Yeah, I think you're going to jump in, Gary. Yeah. Hi, right, good morning. Uh, I just want to kind of go back and forth here because it seems like everybody that we've just, we, or most everything that we've uh, studied here throughout the year comes down to truth to me. You know I mean, everybody, what is the truth? And, uh, and, 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 isn't it real truth is, is in this day and age, and obviously you just talked about traditional Judaism, everybody had the truth. And, and, uh, and with social media today and, and television and news, I mean, just look what's going on in Israel now. I mean, who do you believe? Do you believe Fox? Do you believe CNN? Do you believe the Israeli government? Do you believe the IDF? Uh, and every, everybody feels they have the truth. Uh, uh, what was it? I forgot that during uh, Trump era, you know, the re the real truth. Well, what's what's the real the real truth? And 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 I have to agree with what what Sarah said. Uh, I mean, we have some responsibility to search out the truth ourselves. But even that is is biased depending on society or our culture or what our our belief system is. I have friends that are in the Orthodox world. They they think they have the truth. Uh, I live in a more a modern world, and I don't want to say I have the truth, but I disagree with, with their interpretations on uh, in, in modernity. So uh, I don't know what the truth is anymore. Uh, I mean, I like to think that uh, what the Torah tells me, but you may tell me one thing, and another rabbi may tell me something else, and uh, and it's up to me to make to, you know to make to make that uh, decision. And the other thing I wanted to bring out was what Sarah said. Uh, you know, if, if if you tell me something and I and I question you, and it turns out to be a uh, something that's kind of exaggerated, uh, and then but I hurt your feelings because I called you on it. I mean, that's a sense of uh, doing say little, do much. Uh, I just have to know who you are and and just take it that's part of your 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 personality. Uh, but how about the person that? doesn't under, even understand what humility is. You know, we, we've all run across people and they're constantly insulting people uh, in public or personally, and they don't even realize what they're doing. Uh, so, I, you know, that's all I have to say. Awesome, Gary. Yeah, <laughs> thank you so much there. I'm going to be very brief because I want to hear from more people. But yeah, just two re quick reactions. One is just how aware we are, as you said, that there's a spin on everything. Everything has a spin. And we're, we're very skeptical, maybe even cynical, around the spin of the news, the spin of politicians, the spin of sales. Think about think about the word salesman. It's, a, it's become a dirty word, right? The person is trying to sell me something, right? Well, I actually want them to sell me something. I'm here to buy a fridge. I need someone to sell me something. But I don't trust you because you're the salesman, right? And so everyone is a little bit distrusted based upon their spin. Um, and when we get to, again, to Foucault later and some others we're going to get to, we're going to see that all truth claims are really power maneuvers. 
and that truth and power are more interconnected than we might have thought. Why we believe what we do, why we make certain truth claims we do, and why we receive the ones that others do as well, and what that has to do with power. Um, and not just purely power is a bad word. We think of power as corrupt, right? But also power meaning, um, well, well let, maybe let's not go there now. But essentially, there's a social dynamic in the language we choose and in the truth claims we make. And there's something we seek to gain through that through that use of language. Okay, before we wrap up, I want to see Steve. Okay, Steve's going to jump in. Great. Okay. Uh, so, sometimes the truth is explicit, and and it it's it's not what we're saying; it's what we're doing. And sometimes it's ambiguous, like like Gary is saying, and and we just have to be at ease with that. We won't always know the truth. Uh, number two: Does sign language have subtleties, or is it more explicit than maybe spoken spoken words are? Uh, and and uh, number three is my mom's smile was kind of like your mom's smile. It was like an invitation. Come join me. We'll be warm and have a doggone good time. And that's it. <laughs> that's awesome. Thank you for sharing that, Steve. It's nice to know our mothers had that in common. Um, and um, I don't know if this truth was this quote was accurate, but that one of the quotes that everybody posted when is Toni Morrison alive? No. Right. She died a few years ago. Right. Yeah, she good. died a few years ago, yeah. Good, I just want to make sure I wasn't confusing her. When Toni Morrison died, I'm, I'm 95% sure, although maybe I shouldn't say it if I'm only 95%, was something like more important than the words you did, excuse me, the actions you took or the words you spoke was how you made people feel. And we might say, oh, I did all the right things. I said all the right things. But no, how did I make someone feel in the end? Um, yeah, oh, yes, very interesting on ASL, yes. So... So thank you for that. And um, yeah, and going back to that point on truth and what we're trying to convey there, we might, you know, in that sense of, do we even know our own truth? One of the greatest, one of the greatest um, philosophical points made throughout all these philosophers we're looking at is that a big part of wisdom is knowing oneself. Plato says it most famously, but it continues throughout knowing thyself and some people think you can do that but i'm pretty skeptical we can know ourselves we often think we do but there's so many layers to the self um and so many different narratives we've accepted of who we are when we're many more more than that we tell a story of who we are but we're much more than that story we tell right or and we're also the, not to mention the subconscious and unconscious realms of self right going back to the misdiagnosis the person who walks in uh, doctor, I'm depressed. Can I have depressed medicine? Well, actually, there's a whole bunch more going on. I I'm anxious. Can I have anxiety medicine? It might be that's what I need. It might actually be that there's a whole lot more going on in me than just needing to get a prescription, um, you know, for, for, for that. And someone's going to have to hopefully do that work and not just write a prescription, but actually listen to somebody and get to know them because they don't know themselves yet. Um, going back to, you know, what is this thing on my skin? I have no idea. Right? And so, friends, um, let's continue to know ourselves. Let's continue to be humble about what we know. And let's be um, super thoughtful about the language we use, when to speak and when to not to, and what language to use and use our language to build up rather than to destroy, to bring light rather than darkness, to use our language that helps people to feel loved rather than hurt. May we all be blessed to do that in this Hanukkah time of light.
all the more so that we can spark light in others. God bless. Have a great day.